Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature the evolution of the domestication of dogs, electric spaceships and HIV immunity. But first up, here's the news with John Bale and Aaron Cook. Hello, I'm Aaron Cook. Researchers at Johns Hopkins University have discovered that older people who care for a spouse with dementia are six times more at risk of developing the problem themselves. The study followed 1,200 couples over 12 years, and its authors speculate that the stress of caring for a loved one with dementia could be the driving factor. More studies are needed to verify this idea. In happier news... Scientists from Purdue University and the University of New South Wales have calculated that under worst-case scenarios for global warming, a deadly combination of high temperature and high humidity could develop in some areas. Researchers have for the first time calculated the highest wet bulb temperature that humans can tolerate. Wet bulb temperature is equivalent to the temperature we feel when our wet skin is exposed to moving air. So when you get out of a swimming pool, even though it might be 35 degrees, when the wind blows on your skin, it cools to the wet bulb temperature, which, depending on the humidity, might be around 20 to 25 degrees Celsius. You feel cooler. Now humans generate about 100 watts of energy, about the same amount of energy as a standard light bulb, and to cool yourself down, you need to get rid of that heat, and we do that by sweating. But if the wet bulb temperature is warmer than the temperature of your skin, you literally can't cool yourself by sweating, you can't cool yourself down, and within short order, you're going to die of heat stress. Now, the researchers have calculated that humans with a body temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, roughly, could only tolerate a wet bulb temperature of above 35 degrees Celsius for six hours before fatally overheating. Although temperatures on Earth regularly reach over 40 degrees Celsius, this is always when the humidity is very low and so the wet bulb temperature is much less than that. But if the worst case scenarios of climate change come to pass under the IPCC projections of about a 6 degree rise, then parts of the world would in fact become uninhabitable. It would be too hot and too humid for humans to live there. These conditions haven't been seen for over 50 million years, so they haven't existed during the time of hominids. And the worst places to be under this scenario, which we're saying could happen by 2100, areas of central South America, the Amazon, West Africa, the southwest United States, uh, areas of India, and also parts of central Australia. So basically areas now that are already very hot and very humid, Uh, Look out if you're still around in 100 years. 
Ion propulsion, a popular term used when science fiction needs to explain how a galactic spaceship crosses the universe, has jumped off the paper to become a reality. NASA has confirmed its Dawn probe, currently past Mars, is zooming off towards the asteroid belt between Saturn and Jupiter, thanks to ion propulsion. Compared to traditional chemical combustion, which involves burning fuel to provide pressure to propel a rocket, ion propulsion involves giving xenon atoms an electrical charge, which enables them to be accelerated to speeds of 30 kilometers per second before being expelled from a spacecraft to push it. The benefits of this new propulsion system are clear when looking at the amount of fuel needed and attainable velocity for the craft. Slightly less than 82 kilograms of xenon propellant is needed to fuel a space probe for over 20 months. That same amount of fuel would get the craft to a velocity of over 16,000 kilometers per hour. The same amount of standard space rocket fuel couldn't even attain a velocity one-tenth of that. NASA wouldn't even have considered the current Dawn probe mission with conventional fuel because it would have been just too heavy to even launch off the planet. The bigger picture for ion propulsion is that places previously considered too far for surveying have just gotten a whole lot closer. In the late 90s, it was found that a very small percentage of individuals, about 1 in 200, are immune to the HIV virus. Researchers identified the gene involved, only to recently have they begun understanding how this immunity is achieved. A collaboration of research teams have found that this special gene, called so unlovingly HLA-B57, causes the body to make up more potent killer T-cells, the white blood cells that defend the body from infectious invaders. The T-cells bind stronger to HIV-based proteins, which mean the cells are much better at identifying and destroying HIV-infected cells due to the HIV-based proteins they present. Once a T-cell has found its first HIV invader, it's also activated at a much higher level to bind and destroy any other HIV-infected cells. This heightened activation for binding also seems to eliminate HIV's effective tendency to mutate to safety in yet unrecognized protein forms. A downside of this super control of the HIV infection is that the individual human carriers of this gene are more susceptible to autoimmune diseases in which the white blood cell attacks the person's own good cells. These results offer hope that researchers will be able to draw out the gene's effectiveness for binding and activation of killer T-cells in a vaccine for those who don't have the gene. DNA analysis of 139 orcas have revealed new information about the species, specifically that the killer whales are not one but three separate species. According to the American researchers, the three orca species radiated apart from one another 150 to 700,000 years ago, which is only an eye blink according to the evolutionary time. The species differ in subtle appearances, hunting habits, and diet. Ross Sea orcas from the Antarctic are about two-thirds the size of most orcas, yet only fish and have the smallest eye streak of all. Pack ice orcas also live in the Arctic but have the largest eye patch and hunt seals. Both are grayer than the northern East Pacific transient orcas living off Alaska, which feed on marine mammals, including dolphins. Which one of these did Willie from Free Willy belong to? We're not sure. He wasn't tested. Thank you, John and Aaron. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2SCR.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Mark West talks to Alan Wilton about the domestication of dogs. Basically, it's uh, an international collaboration to look at the 
domestication of dogs and try and identify where dogs originated and when they originated. We included in that group a number of dingo samples that we had tested here in Australia. And what it, all of the researchers had been using in common was this uh, molecular biology tool that allows you to look at uh, 50,000 different regions of the of the dog all in one experiment and uh, compare all of those 50,000 little bits of uh, sequence, DNA sequence information. And then, you know, sort of try and make a story out of it, you know, who's most closely related to who and, uh, and you know, which ones are the most different. The interesting bit of information from our point of view is the dingo turned out to be uh, the most different of all of the uh, domestic-type dogs. And the other major bit of the story is uh, uh, where did dogs originate and did they originate just once or several times from... When, and they were obviously domesticated from wolves, but this data also confirms that, gives us an idea of when and where. So the dingo is quite a special breed. Does the study suggest a timeline for when the dingoes might have arrived in Australia? Yeah, our previous research work that I've done in collaboration with other people uh, has suggested that the dingoes came to Australia about 5,000 years ago and that okay. probably only quite a small group of individuals. If you look at the genetic variation amongst the dingoes, there's, there's not much. It suggests that not many animals brought into Australia when they came. And, th and that fits with the archaeological evidence. So the, archaeological, the earliest archaeological evidence for dingoes is about you know, sort of three and a half, four thousand years ago. At around that time, people were visiting, sailing the northern Australia to uh, trade with Aborigines and collect sea cucumbers and things like that. A large number of different animals had been brought in, particularly from different places. We'd expect to see a lot of genetic variation, a lot of DNA differences in the DNA between dingoes but we find very little differences. And one of the bits of DNA that we look at is the mitochondrial DNA, and, and that's inherited only from the mother. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so the study we did with some Swedish colleagues uh, who were also interested in, you know, in domestication of the dog, it showed that there's really only one mitochondrial DNA type in all of the dingoes that we've tested in Australia. And that... Uh, that suggests that very few individuals, you know, perhaps even only one female, was brought across to Australia, or at least all of the animals that were brought across probably came from the same village and were related. And there were 85 different breeds of dog that were looked at in this study. What are some of the other ancient breeds of dog that are still around? A number of the different uh, Chinese breeds seem to be, uh, and Asian breeds seem to be uh, a little different to the, the standard European breeds. So. Uh, things like uh, Akitas and Chows are considered uh, ancient breeds and uh, they're Asian breeds. And then the Basinji, which is also another dog that doesn't bark, uh, like the Dingo. It, it's an uh, African dog originally and it's uh, also shown to be uh, quite a, an ancient uh, breed of dog. And uh, this study suggests that domestication first took place in the Middle East as opposed to East Asia, which uh, was the previously held 
uh, belief. I understand there's been a bit of controversy about this. So. Yes, it is a controversial finding. It's, it's very difficult to take data from evidence of animals alive today and work out what happened 15, 20,000 years ago. And so you have to make certain assumptions. And this data seemed to find that if you compare the DNA from wolves that are from the Middle Eastern area, that they share more similarity to domestic dogs than wolves from other areas. And and so that's what the, the basis of the claim in this paper is, whether as other people that previously looked at genetic variation around between dogs around the world, and they found the most variation in, in uh, areas of China, and they interpreted that as saying that that's where uh, the dogs had uh, originated because there was lots of genetic variation there. So they both make certain, based on certain assumptions which we don't know are true, and the other issue is we don't know really, you know, were there several different domestication events? Have some of these animals that we call the ancient breeds, like the dingo and the chow and akita and basinji, were they a different domestication event to the European domestic dogs? So I imagine it's quite hard just to draw a simple family tree of dogs. Yeah, well, they, they attempted in this paper, and I have from, some very nice coloured pictures of uh, uh, the family tree of dogs and how they are, are related. And, and it's obvious that, you know, sort of the wolves stand out from all the different breeds, and we can see how all the different breeds are related to each other. But uh, the, the question of um, where the domestication event occurred is, is, is a little bit more difficult than, than uh, just plotting the relationship between animals. How long ago did domestication occur? When I first looked at the title, I thought that perhaps uh, the domestication event might have been in Africa when humans moved out of there. Uh, can we put a, a date on the domestication event in the Middle East? These sorts of things have a big uh, standard error on them, you know, so, so it's a bit of a guesstimate. But uh, it's around 15,000 years ago, uh, 15 to 20,000 years ago, and there is archaeological evidence. It's also difficult to interpret, You're trying to tell the difference between bones from a dog and bones from a wolf can be uh, quite difficult. Uh, but the archaeologists think they can can do that. And there are various dates of bones from from dogs, some even back as far as 40,000 years ago. So this is the, sort of the period of you know, 20,000 years ago when uh, people were starting to settle down and live in uh, farming communities and things like that. And uh, just a question about your dingo research. I noticed that in 2004 you were awarded the Unsung Hero of Science Award by the Australian Communicators for your dingo research. Where is your research into dingoes taking you right now? One of the main areas of research that we're doing is looking at the problem of hybridisation between domestic dogs and, and the dingoes because the dingo is a, a distinct very different breed of dog but it, is, it was once a domesticated dog and it's probably what all domesticated dogs were like about 5,000 years ago before all of these modern breeds were created and if we want to conserve our, the native dingo as it was originally 
we have to be able to differentiate between pure dingoes and hybrids. And so we're using sort of DNA fingerprinting methods, the same sort of thing that you see on uh, all of these forensic CSI programs on the television for identifying missing people and things like that, to try and distinguish between uh, hybrids and pure animals and try and find out if there are any populations left that are pure dingoes uh, or if, you know, the, indeed the dingo is doomed to extinction and replacement in Australia by the domestic dog. Oh, that's really interesting. So we might have already passed a point of no return with the dingo. Well, there are some many uh, conservation groups that uh, are have dingoes in captivity that they're breeding in the hope that one day they'll be able to be released into the wild in a protected area. And we do have uh, naturally protected areas like Fraser Island that, uh, you know, where you, uh, it's a national park and people can't take their dogs and it's separated by water. So uh, you can't have dingoes just wandering in off the street. And so that would seem to be a, a pure population of and the hope is that we'll find some isolated populations in the centre of Australia that still haven't had contact with domestic dogs. But part of the problem is the way we treat the dingoes is the dingoes have a social structure where they, any foreign dog that came into their area would uh, usually be uh, killed as an intruder. But uh, if we shoot and and poison the animals and break up their social structure so you have solitary animals wandering around desperate for a mate they'll, they'll probably breed with any old uh, poodle that they come across and uh, and and therefore we're encouraging hybridization by uh, destroying their their social structure mm, it's an interesting idea that the dingoes were once uh, domesticated and then became undomesticated. So the dingo precursor was a domesticated dog and then they came to Australia where they became undomesticated. Well, the, the Aboriginal uh, people you know, used uh, dingoes as, as pets in their camps uh, and uh, used them as hunting dogs uh, as well. So, um, And there were a lot of wild animals as well. So they weren't uh, uh, only... Uh, a wild animal in Australia, though the dingoes tend to be a lot smarter and quicker than uh, the most domestic dogs. And and so the story is you can train a dingo to do what you want it to do whenever it feels like it. You know, so it's more like trying to train a cat than a, than a dog. So uh, unfortunately, even in uh, Aboriginal communities, uh, the dingo's been replaced with uh, the much more compliant uh, European domestic dog. So uh, even in uh, outback areas, there's uh, uh, a lot of domestic dogs around. And uh, unfortunately, if it goes on the way it's been, the dingo will go the way of the thylacine and uh, they'll be, the, the dingo probably replaced the thylacine when they came into Australia about 4,000 years ago. And now the dingo were replaced by the European domestic dog. I was I was just about to ask about the thylacine. So the thylacine was on the mainland four thousand years ago. Yeah. So the thylacine and, and the, the Tassie devil both would have been uh, on the mainland at about that time. And and you know sort of one of the probably major factors in the extinction of the thylacine from the mainland was uh, the presence of dingoes, which probably outcompeted them. But they remained in Tasmania because the uh, the dingoes never made it to Tasmania. So the thylacine, it's more closely related to the Tasmanian devil than it is to dogs and wolves? 
crops. Yes, it is. Uh, the thylacine is a marsupial, and so uh, it's uh, you know, if you look at a, a genetic tree, I mean that they the marsupial separated from from the eutherian mammals uh, something like 150 million years ago. So well beyond the scope of this study. Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, long, long way away. There's often talk about trying to clone a thylacine and bring it back, and that might be difficult, I guess, but I guess we could do this uh, with the dingo. What do you think? Well, the dingoes are much more closely related to you know, domestic dogs, uh, but I mean, some people have even proposed, you know, sort of freezing down embryos and or, you know, eggs and sperm and things like that. So, so in the future, we could bring back the dingo, but hopefully we can at least keep on breeding it, even if, even if only in captivity, so that we don't have to uh, go that far as uh, it's much more difficult with the thylacine because the closest relative we have is the the Tasmanian devil and uh, trying to put all that DNA together and put it back into a uh, a developer a live egg you know or a live embryo uh, with chunks of inanimate pieces of DNA is not an easy thing to do. So you want to start with something that's a, a living cell, like an egg and a sperm, and make the job a lot easier. And do you have any comments about where we should be headed with trying to preserve the dingo? I guess the the comment I I have is that, you know something needs to be done to uh, try and preserve the dingo in the wild, and uh, the only way we can do that is by uh, separating the uh, pure dingoes from you know, the the feral population of of domestic dogs that people have let their dogs go and things like that and so I guess a study like this shows how unique the dingo is. Yeah, so uh, hopefully that's uh, one of the uh, things that will come away from this study. It was it will show the politicians and decision makers that. The dingo is quite distinct from modern domestic dogs, the most different of all the, the breeds of dogs. And, and from that basis, it uh, should be uh, an effort to uh, preserve it. And uh, from that point of view, if you replace the dingo in the wild with domestic dogs, the domestic dogs may not have the same behavior and the same effect on the on the ecosystem. And so... If you just as if if you remove dingoes from an area, foxes and cats will come in, and they'll decimate the other native wildlife in the region that have you know sort of stabilised to the presence of the dingo. If you replace the dingo with the domestic dog, we don't know whether that will have a similar similar effect or not. You know whether. Uh, other native species in the area will end up going extinct because of different uh, hunting behaviours of the domestic dog to the dingo. Or... That was Mark West looking at the evolutionary tipping point of domestication of dogs with Alan Wilton. And now... Dan Bull's open letter to the Home Secretary to free Gary McKinnon. Dear Alan Johnson, we're against the extradition of Gary McKinnon, not letting it happen to him. 
He's a valuable Britain, a man with a gift, and we're standing around with a banishing it. There's the evidence, where's the terrorist? Is America pissed because he damaged the image? It's hardly the baddest to sit, is it? Admit it. Grab a pen, hand me the petition to stick the extradition act in the bin. I'm not having that, take a fragile man from his habitat. As a matter of fact, such a talented hacker should have a salary at NASA. But no salary, just a salary. I really think justice just as well would be served up in Great Britain when McKinnon can be with his family. But apparently a British citizen isn't considered innocent If Uncle Sam disagrees, what well, Dan disagrees I'm demanding Gary's release Put your hands up and be counted Cos we are demanding Gary's release Free, free Gary McKinnon Free, free Gary McKinnon I see Gmail peeping at my email But I doubt they're gonna see jail if we let him take him, we fail. The train to justice derailed. Doesn't matter if he's male or female, disabled, Asian. We need to rail against the veil pretense. How can we let them prevail? Read the details. Extradition, a one-way system against tradition. If an American did it, he'd never be sent to prison in Britain. So if they reckon they're getting McKinnon, they better be kidding, in it. Pester your local politician to petition to abolish it and prevent this horrible predicament. Use common sense, not ignorance, not submission. To a hegemony, there's the prison and now where's the money? What's the difference? Has anybody got permission to wreck somebody? Watch and listen. So the Pentagon's defenses weren't working as they're meant to work. They were happy as Larry. That's still Gary gathered they were hackable actually. And yes, he acted silly. But imagine if the act was military. He could have smashed security to pieces, weak in a national emergency. But he did it because he isn't a criminal, but a fantastic Aspergersky. Free, free, Gary McKinnon. Your sincerely, Dan Bull. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild, passionate praise, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mark West, John Bale and Aaron Cook. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.